verse 6 says, if you put these things before the brothers, and what what things? Right? Because we took a break. We, we, we weren't here last week. What things? If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. I should also let our guests know. Um, we worship with a church, and, and I told the pastor he did a great job, and he said, hey, I like to take a 35-minute sermon and, and do it in about 25 minutes. I said, that's great. I take about a 35-minute sermon and do it about 45 to 50. So you're in for a ride. If you ever get uncomfortable, I totally get it. Not uncomfortable in the words. That's God's word. But if you get uncomfortable on those nice hardwood benches, then just stand up. Okay. But we're going to keep moving through the word. If you put these things before the brothers, what things? Everything that has come before this moment. That includes, if you go all the way back through Timothy, all the corrections, the encouragements, the reminders, the qualifications for elders, for deacons, the false teachers, prayer, God's return. If you put all these things, you will be a good servant. So he's telling him to do these things. He says, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Okay, so here's something you might want to note. Like, there's kind of a shift here. Throughout Timothy, he's really been talking about the church in general. I desire that all men pray lifting holy hands. I just, you know, got to watch out for false teachers. He really shifts to the very personal note here. So he's not just talking about in general, like the congregation of people. He's talking to Timothy in this passage. And he says, you want to know what a good servant is? Timothy, here are my words for you. You'll be a good servant if you keep these things before the people. We got to listen to it in that way. Paul is talking to a very real Timothy in history. Like it's a very real relationship, a very real Timothy needed to hear these things. Pastors need to hear the things that Paul is telling Timothy because there is a great model and example for us. But you and I, we are all ministers. We've all been given a ministry of reconciliation is what Corinthians says. None of us gets to go, well, it's not my job to walk in the Christian faith. It's not my job to serve others. It's not my job to love others. It's not my job to do this or that. We are gifted differently, absolutely. But we are all called to proclaim His excellencies to a dying world. So, I filter through this myself in three ways. He said it to Timothy. He's saying it to me. And then for you, I'd say, he's saying it to you as well. All right, so I want to try and find that balance in there. But really, I'm going to let the Word speak for itself for what it was to Timothy. You're going to hear how I've wrestled through it because the sermon is here before you. But it also is applicable to you as well. So you can't go, well, I'm not a pastor I'm not a pastor's wife. I'm not that, so that's not for me. Oh no, it most definitely is for all of us. Do you want to be a good servant of the Lord Jesus Christ? This is what it begins to look like. The NIV said it, it says that verse in this way: If you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus. I love this. Nourished, not just trained, but nourished on the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. If you have the New American, then you see that it says you're, they were constantly nourished. Like the principle is this, y'all. I can't give you anything that I do not have myself. And that's the idea. As Paul is writing to Timothy, he says, look, you've been nourished in this. You've been trained in the Word. You need to be putting this back out to others. And to you, if you're going to be pouring out to others, then there's got to be an intake. There has to be an intake. And... and in the ESV, they translate it trained, which I think is right. Right, We train ourselves, we get trained, we get shaped by these things. But I really love how the NIV and the NASB really put it. It does nourish the weary soul. 
Whatever we've taken these things in, it nourishes us, it gives us what we need so that we can keep going. But I want to keep going now. Here we go. Have nothing. So here's the imperative. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for life to come. Okay, this is where we're going to start meddling just a little bit. And it's not intentional. You need to tell yourself, Ricky's not talking to me specifically, but these are things that we are all going to wrestle with as we continue moving through this passage. Okay, first off, Paul does remind Timothy, and I need to hear this, have nothing to do with those topics that are a waste of time. Right, he says, don't get caught up in these silly myths. He's talking to a pastor there. He says, don't get caught up in these silly myths. The NIV calls them godless myths and old wives tales. The, the New American Standard, those are just, I use those two translations because I know that those are two that are circulating in this room right now. He says, stay away from worthless stories that are typical of old women. That wasn't the meddling part, by the way. Like, that's just, there's a, they're wrestling with the language of, you know what, Pastor? Don't waste your time on the things you're not supposed to be wasting your time on. What do we already know from Scripture? The pastor should be devoted to proclaiming and teaching and preaching the Word and pastoring the people and pouring into them. The temptation for us, though, is to step into every conversation and get distracted by so many things that consume our time so that we can't actually pastor the people. That's kind of the heart of this message. Pastor, protect your attention. But I'm going to say to you as well, Guard your attention. We find ourselves so consumed in so many things in the world that we can no longer be captivated by who Christ is or be amazed by the gospel because we're worried about this. We want to say this. We want to post this. We want to retweet this. We have all this news coming in and we want to have a commentary for it when really we just need to sit back. But pastors also, we, there's a great temptation for pastors and for all of us to fall into pointless conversations that have nothing to do with growing in godliness. We really need to just zip our lips, shut our mouths, however we can nicely say that. But we need to not get caught up in that. Now, don't get me wrong. There are plenty of things in this world that we need to speak into, right? But if, if it's consuming us and we're distracted by it and we're not having Christ at the center, then it is time for us to step back and not get caught up, have nothing to do with these pointless conversations. But I don't want you to hear me say this either, that don't step into hard situations. Chas has told me several times, here recently, Chuck, you know you're kind of a bulldog on things. I'm like, I, I know. Is that a bad thing? She goes, well, bulldogs kind of intimidate people. I'm like, I am not intimidating. I'm very delightful. And she's like, very true. But sometimes it's hard because you're willing to step into a conversation or to push things whenever people would be comfortable with you just letting them go. And I was like, but sometimes you've got to step in. Like, that's just the roles. We can't always step back. We've got to, like, step into it. So I know that about myself. And that is a strength, and it's also a weakness of mine. So I want you to hear kind of the duality of that. Don't get caught up in pointless conversations that really lead to nothing redemptive. Right? But at the same time, Andy and I can talk about the Oculus. We can talk about good music. We can have good coffee and see what's going on in life. It's not that. It's We live in a world where there's so many agendas. There's so many conversations. There's so many theories. There's so many concepts. And we feel like we got to address all of these. You need my attention not to be on all of those, but on 
the congregation of Cross Life Fort Smith. I'm called to pastor Cross Life Fort Smith, not a digital world, not a digital media. They can have their pastors, but this is who I'm called to pastor. It's who Andy is called to be an elder alongside. It's who Jared has said, hey, I have this desire to be an elder, like here, and that's what we consume ourselves with. So there's that idea. But if, you're, if you'll just kind of take a simple stock of, of what you spend your time thinking about and conversing in and taking in, make sure you're not consumed with something that is not promoting Christ-likeness in you. Satan is so deceptive. It is so easy to hear your own voice, and it's him masquerading with your voice to say, this really needs your attention right now, whenever really it doesn't. But Paul kind of hedges that off, says, have nothing to do with those things. Take a look at uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2. Flip there, so you're just going to the right. Keep in mind that whenever 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy were written, they were not titled. Paul was writing a letter to Timothy who he had said, you're going to stay, in, you're going to stay there, you're going to put the things of the church in order. And then Paul writes a letter. Like, it wasn't titled 1 Timothy. We've gone back and said, oh, that was the first letter that he wrote to Timothy. He wrote a second letter to Timothy. So... Scholars have come in and said, oh, this was 1 Timothy. 2 Timothy because it was a second letter. There's your deep theology for the moment. But they're together, and we keep them chronological. Same thing with your Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. They're two letters that were written. 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians. 1 letter, 2 letter. Okay, so in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4 through 7, here's what the pastor must do, and here's what I would have you be mindful of. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 4-7. through seven. No soldier, Paul writes, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. And in this way, it's God. Like God has called us into this ministry of reconciliation, right? Verse 5. An athlete, Paul writes, is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer, here's the other example, who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. But just keep that in mind. No soldier who is trained for the battlefield, who is to go out and wage war or to defend, gets caught up in the civilian pursuits of what's going on on the streets. The great temptation for us is to get caught up in the civilian pursuits and worry about all these things instead of fulfilling the ministry that he's called us to. And keep in mind, you cannot say he has not given you a ministry. He most absolutely has. We're just to discern what it is. Now, then then we get to verse 8. For while bodily training is of some value, this is where you're like, okay. All right, so while bodily training is of some value, y'all listen to this. While bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Have you ever considered that we will spend time and energy and, and money to train our bodies? We will subscribe to diet plans. We will get up super early. We will allocate 30 to 45 minutes. Like We will do all these things to train and keep our body healthy. There is no limit for some people to the extreme to which they will go, and we will not do this for ourselves spiritually. Have you ever just kind of stepped back and went, hmm. I will say my wife is actually really good at this. I'm very diligent. I, have a, I'm, I believe in, in exercise. I think it's healthy. I'm a better pastor. I'm a better friend, a better father, a better son. I'm better in every way whenever I get up to exercise, just so you know. But my wife is really good of, you know, I haven't been able to get up and even read my Bible. So why should I even get up and go walk? Like, I need to be in the Word today, not on the treadmill or walking. And I'm like, that is like... 
the greatest thing I've ever heard. Like, I think it's awesome and it's wonderful. Like, that's, that's the right heart, though. And I will tell you, it is not always my heart. My heart is... Five o'clock, man, I got to get up and I got to go work out. And then I get to the end of the day. I'm like, I miss, I miss being in the word. But just consider that we will allocate our time, our energy, our money to train our bodies. And we're not usually willing to do the same thing spiritually. So I'm going to press into that a little bit more. We're not willing to sacrifice our time. Not willing to sacrifice our sleep, our money for the sake of godliness. We will get up early to walk, but not study the word. But again, not my wife, because she's awesome, right? Okay. We'll spend money on supplements and on dietary needs, but not on apps, programs, or books that will train our souls. $1.99, that's way too much right now for an app. Not if it can help train you in godliness. We'll find 30 minutes to go work out, but we can't find the energy to study the Word. And these are truths, right? Like, just tell yourself, Ricky's not like talking to me. I thought about keeping my head right here. But these are things, y'all, I need you to hear this. I'm guilty of exactly the same things. Our problem, if you take the conversations and you take the training in godliness, it all comes down to priorities, which I'm going to start pressing into more and more right now. Here's a principle that I try to live by. It's very simple. We prioritize what we value. That's the, the long and short of it. Whatever it is that you value, that you truly value, it takes top priority. And if you sit there and think on it, then that's very encouraging in some ways and it's very convicting in other ways. Why am I not doing these things that I know I want to do? Because we don't actually value it. So a principle that I live by in life is we will prioritize what we value. Those things that we value the most will get our utmost attention, affection, and energy. And the things that we value the least to get the least of our attention, affection, and energy. The problem in our Christianity these days is not that we don't love the Lord. We just don't value the pursuit of godliness anymore. Like, that's it. I love the Lord. Of course I do. He saved me. He, he died for me. He bled. I get I love the Lord. And yet our churches are empty. And our Bibles are sitting on, on desks. And we're not training ourselves for godliness. We've taken His grace for granted. And so, I'm just going to repeat because it's going to come up again. But we do prioritize what we value. Look at your schedule today. Look at your schedule for the week. What is it that you are absolutely prioritizing? That's what you value. Well, what about the things that aren't on my calendar? We don't value them enough. You know what? That's why my family gets precedence over a whole lot of other stuff because I value my family more importantly than, excuse me, than other stuff. You know what Chas in that moment of getting up early values more? She values being in the Word and studying more than she does being like on the treadmill or walking or working out. She sees that value of godliness. Are we perfect people? No. Sit down and, and have a conversation with us. We will tell you the failings. Parents, if you're sitting up here and you're watching your kids and you hear Megan's prayer and she's like, and we're praying for the parents who are training their kids and doing all those. Chats the other day, she said, you know who's the absolute worst person in the church at family worship? And I was like, I feel like this is a trap. And she, she took a break. She goes, we are. We're horrible at this. Like we don't prioritize our own family worship. And we're like telling people that they need to be doing it. And I'm like, you're right. She goes, and you're the pastor. I was like, I got it. <laughs> Y'all, we don't have it all together. That's not why I'm here this morning. Like, I'm just telling you. 
I evidently do not value family worship enough or it would have a greater priority, and that is to my failing as a father and as a husband and as a Christian. Like, I know that. It's convicting. It's crushing in moments. We don't have it all together. That's why we are absolutely happy being the examples. We will prioritize what we value. The problem in our Christianity is not that we don't love the Lord. We just don't value the pursuit of holiness enough. It demands our time, our attention, our affection. It demands everything of us. Usually, because I, I do believe in exercise, and I told you, like, I'm, I'm so much better emotionally, mentally, physically. Like, you look at my, Chas will tell you, he's very disciplined. I've been doing this for years. Three to four times a week, I'll get up at five o'clock. Andy wanted to start working out with me at one time, at one point. And I said, okay, great. Got to be here at 5. He's like, I got to get up at 4.45. I was like, great, cool. I'll see you at 5 o'clock and we can do this. And like, that's just, I'm, I'm very disciplined in that way. I'm disciplined in how I study. I have, to, I have to be with my life. But if I'm willing to neglect the Word and my time with the Lord, then all of that physical training and all the balance that I feel like I get means absolutely nothing because ultimately this body will decay and break. It's fragile and it's frail. Like all of it ends within decades, if I'm being honest. Usually, my, my athletes, my diligent people, often what I've found is that we're trying to find a certain peace or satisfaction in our physical pursuits that actually probably has a deeper core spiritual need. Like I'm trying to find a certain satisfaction and contentment and peace and just resolve that actually has a deeper spiritual need where it seems so totally counterintuitive, but if I would press into the word more, I wouldn't feel probably this need in my body. I think both are good and valid, but I just want to encourage you this. The runner's high dissipates. His presence never. Okay, so we need that duality. Paul is not saying in any way that you can't exercise. Read other verses. We train ourselves. We're like a shadow boxer. Like he... He absolutely does that. I think that he might have been athletic, but he was also in a Greco-Roman world, and he knows that athleticism is a big deal, so he uses those analogies. So I'm going to do it this way. The runner's high eventually dissipates. His presence does not. I would ask you some rhetorical questions, and I'm going to keep my head down. If you are physically healthier, fantastic. And I would ask, how is your spirit? How is your joy? How is your peace? How is your love for both God and man? How is your service to your church, to your neighbor, and to your family? How is your forgiveness and mercy? How is your hope? How's your scripture memorization? And I could go on and on, and you know we could. But there's some there's some deep seated spiritual things we really want to wrestle with. You know, we, I have a pet peeve. Okay, I just got to, like, the whole getting your steps thing, like, it drives me crazy. It really does. Like, if you do that, that's fantastic. I will check my steps, like, whenever we've been at Disney World and stuff, because it's fascinating. But we live in a culture where getting our steps seems much like a higher achievement than pursuing peace and holiness. One of my favorite verses that I try to live by as much as I can is Hebrews 12, 14. And so if you don't know Hebrews 12, 14, you should look at it. It's a very sobering verse, Hebrews 12, 14. It's very simple. Strive for peace with everyone. I'm good on that one. And then the next part. 
and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Hmm. Okay, so yeah, we prioritize what we value the most. And Paul says to value spiritual training over physical training. Jeremiah chapter 9 is a great one. And you're, you're familiar with it. You can hold your place if you want. Listen to this. This should be our desire. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. You and I have so many things that we can boast about and that we take great joy and comfort in. And Scripture calls us back and says, make sure that what you boast in is in knowing me and not all those other things. Okay. I'm going to keep going. This one's easy. Okay, don't worry. Verse 9, it's easy. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Y'all, this is the third time, just for like your fun fact of the moment, this is the fun fact. This is the third trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance so far. The first one was in 115. The second one was in 3-1, and now we get to this one right here. Okay? That was your intermission. Here we go again. Paul says, For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. I love that first part. For to this end we toil and we strive. Y'all, this is the same Paul, the exact same Paul, who says, I will most gladly spin and be spent for your souls. He wrote that in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 12, 15. That's one of my favorite verses also. I will gladly spin and be spent for your souls. That's the same Paul. Same Paul who says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering in the time of my departure. His death has come. So here's Paul who says, I will give everything of who I am now and in the future for your souls. And he's the same Paul who later writes, I'm being poured out as a drink offering. All that I am is basically just being depleted. And he's the one who says, for to this end we, I love the words, toil and strive. Y'all, this is the cost of ministry. Like this is what we've been called to. We have not been called to our comfort. We have been called to toil and strive. There are many of you who come alongside me and in a loving way just say, okay, Ricky, this and this, where are you? I got to have that great conversation the other day from a good friend. Like, you've got this going on, you've got this going on. How are you doing? And, and as I talk, I can lay out all the weight of all these things. And yet at the same time, like, I'm like, but I'm going to keep going. Oh, yes, but you need to be careful. I was like, I know. I need you to keep checking on me. I need you to not, not back up from checking on me. Y'all, I can't not do this. I cannot not toil and strive. Nor can you. You can't. You know why God used Paul so mightily? Because Paul was not consumed with himself and he was not lazy. He wasn't worried about his schedules. He wasn't worried about his attention. He wasn't worried about his affections. Paul was willing. That's why God used such a willing servant. That's why Paul was able to do all that he did. Paul was, here we go, obedient. God said, my glory will be known among the nations. And Paul goes, got it, goes. I'm not willing to go. 
I'm willing to go to a certain capacity. I'm willing to sit there and go, God, I know you've called me to this. I'm just, here's my, all my flesh, y'all. By the way, if you're a guest, I love the Lord very, very much. Um, I'm just not there yet. Nor are you. And that's okay. It's why we keep doing this thing together. It was a ministry for Timothy. It was a ministry for Paul. They were to toil. They were to strive. It's a ministry for me. I will toil. I will strive. I will not stop until God says you get to stop. And you don't get to stop until he says stop either. Otherwise, it's disobedience. That's just kind of where he kept sticking with me all throughout. But there wasn't like this heavy conviction as I was writing all of this and dealing with it. It was like an empowering joy. Because I'm like, you do use those who are willing. Like, I will run out of energy totally in my flesh. I will be absolutely exhausted. And that is why we toil and strive. Like, that's exciting. You know why? Because 1 Timothy 4.10, why is all the toiling and striving and everything worth it? Look at 1 Timothy 4.10. This is awesome. Do you know why it's all worth it? Why Paul wrote it? He says, because we have our hope set on the living God. The reason we toil, the reason we have strife, the work, the sleepless nights... Um, day, I'm thinking of Paul. He had toil, he had strife, he had sleepless nights, he had hunger, he had danger, and he pressed on. Why? Because of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ and the living God. Pastors should press on, not because the ministry is easy, but because our hope is set on the living God. He will make everything right. He will reward every toil and he will avenge every wrong. And now Cross Life and everybody who's gathered here, can I just tell you that that should be your motivation as well? That because of God, you press on. He will reward every toil that you have. He will avenge every wrong that is done to you. We don't have to worry about justice. He's the God of justice. He works it all out. And He will be with you. If we're not careful, Ricky, if we're not careful, then we have allowed our own lifestyles and our preferences, our desires, our strengths and weaknesses to shape our Christianity. And at the core of our Christianity then is our own self-preservation. Rather, because of Christ, we should strive. Here's... We don't get to toil and strive because it's easier or convenient. We toil and we strive because Christ came for us and He came for others. That's what you're going to hear at the end of it. Other souls are at stake. You're a Christian? Fantastic. That's wonderful. The gospel doesn't get to end with us. We are just conduits now of His grace to an onlooking, unbelieving world. We toil and we strive because Christ came and died for us. That is the chief motivation to lay your head down at night, weary from all the toil and the strife of the day. It's worth every bit of it. Why? Because one day you will see Him face to face, never parting ever again. And in that moment, you will know that it was all absolutely worth it. But our culture, we have created, y'all, here's how I put it, we have created such a convenient Christianity for ourselves. And we should be ashamed before a holy God who has demanded everything of us. And then my side notes, just, you know, I put notes in my own manuscript, is I'm so tired of that. Aren't you tired of that? Like, even in your own selves, like, you, you see it. You're like, why do I keep doing this to myself? I know, but we have created a convenient Christianity where it's easy for us to be a Christian in the capacity that we want to be, and it does not reflect the heart of Paul, who's writing to Timothy, who would also continue to pour himself out. Here's a note I made to myself. 
souls languish because I'm trying to decide upon my own schedule. Like that's the reality. The lost, all about us. People need minister to, and I'm sitting there trying to manage my own schedule and my own preferences, and how does that fit in? Y'all might be okay with this. You might be like, man, Ricky's got a lot with that. But also keep in mind, like, this is some this is some heavy stuff, but this is some real stuff that we need. We come to the word, and I keep the word always before, so you can see, like, it actually says. It really says, for to this end we tool and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. I'm just trying to break it down and why is that tooling and striving there? Like, what does that actually mean? Y'all, prize Christ is my pastoral admonition and, and advice to you. Prize Christ and serve others in God. That's what we're called to. Turn to Philippians chapter 2 real quick. And then I'll get off this soapbox, okay? I intentionally sat down so that I wouldn't step onto a soapbox. And that was a heavy source of conviction for me. And those of you who walk the most with me, and, um, and if you don't know me, I'm a pretty transparent person or try to be, um, then you know I, I have that tension of this is what I'm called to. And yet, Lord, I'm weak. And then yet somehow He sustains me through the night. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1-8. through eight. Y'all be encouraged in the Word. As I'm saying that we don't get to shape our Christianity on our own lifestyles, preference, desires, strengths, I, I go back to Philippians as I say, y'all, we've got to do this. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1-8. through eight. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, cross life, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, Paul says, complete my joy of being by being of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. And then he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And the... the parenthetical there is grasp for himself like that's the he he didn't want to just hold on to it for himself but he emptied christ emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross you and i must toil you and i must strive because christ came for us and he came for others Real quick, what does it mean there? He says, we have our hope set on the living God who's the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. That We could preach a whole sermon on that. What it really means, if I'm going to summarize it into to the, what would we call that? The, the RTV, the Ricky translation. Um, God's salvation is wide enough. It's deep enough. It has enough breadth in it for all people of all time, should they choose salvation, but it is only applicable. It only applies to those who believe in Him. That's what He's saying is He's the Savior of the entire world. And we can find inscriptions and at that time they're calling Julius Caesar the Savior of all mankind. And Paul is saying, oh no, there is one Savior of all mankind and He is God. Like He is deep enough. He is wide enough. And should all the people of all time move into His salvation, there would still be enough room to move around because it's that wide, it's that big. But it's really for those who believe. So there's that, that mag, 
that magnanimous, like huge thing. That's what it's saying right there. There is but one Savior. Okay, verse 11. He's just, just real simple. Intermission, okay? So, the term command is a military term. It literally means command. It means charge. It doesn't mean, hey, just suggest these things whenever you come together. Like, this is what we're to do, okay? All right. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. You do not get a pass if you say, I'm not young, okay? You just, everybody here, you've got to see what's going on here. This verse is so much like more enjoyable now for me because I did not know that at the time it was written. I always picture like our little kids. I picture our teenagers. Timothy, at the time that Paul was writing to him, was in his mid-30s. And whenever I read that, I was like, oh, okay, cool. I'm young. Okay, cool. So I'm, I'm on the upper end of my 30s. I'll turn 40 this next year, right? Still young. 40 used to be old. Until I started getting older, I'm like, man, 40 is young. 50, prime 60, so young, right? But I have to tell you the truth. As a 39-year-old pastor, you got to go with me on this journey real quick. Five years ago, we planted Cross Life in our living room. What was the heart? Open the Word, live life genuinely alongside others, and just pour into the Word and sing praises to Him. Like That was kind of the heart of it. So like five years ago, I was 34. You go five years before that, I was at the end of my 20s, going into my 30s, and I was called to be an elder of Cross Life in Russellville. And they came to me, and I said, no, like I'm not an elder. Like Elders are older people. And that was the wrong vow, right? But elders were older. And I was like, I have nothing to bring to the table. Like, these men are older. They're wiser than me. And then I kept getting reminded of, Ricky, did you read First Timothy? Do you know the qualifications? You're already serving in the capacity of an elder, though you don't want to recognize it. You're already doing what an elder should be doing. I said, fine. Like, I'm going to come in, but I'm not going to talk. Like, I'm just going to listen and learn from you men. The first meeting started about five, ten minutes in. I've got my ideas, my suggestions, my prayers. Like, I'm fully engaged because it's about the qualifications and the character, not the age. But Paul is clarifying this because this is, in their culture, he is incredibly young to be doing what he's doing. It is not uncommon for us today to see a 30-year-old pastor or to see a 20-year-old church planter or to see um, teenagers on the mission field because God's gospel has equipped us in so many ways. But in that culture, he was young. The pastors were older. They were more mature. They'd been studying for years. As a 39-year-old pastor, I realized that Timothy was in his mid-30s. That really was kind of nice. I, I had many times, I, it's easy for me to disqualify myself whenever I sit alongside other pastors because I'm incredibly intimidated by them. They have more years in ministry. I saw my age, and if I'm not tempted, sometimes I still see it as a disqualifier. And so like, I really do cling to this verse now not feeling like it's written for those who are in a youth group, but it's written for us. I want to share this passage because uh, it's from, and y'all just bear with me, it's from a book called On Pastoring by H.B. Charles. It was a hugely encouraging book that I read over this past year. I just want to read a passage to you. Another one that I was reading at the same time was Brothers, We Are Not Professionals by John Piper. Both of those two books God used to really kind of shape my ministry and my comfort in it. But in a chapter by H.B. Charles... Y'all, you need to know, he was called to, to pastor his father's church at the age of 17. And he wrestles with that throughout the book. Like, he's like, they would let me preach, but I couldn't make decisions. I could sit in on a meeting, but I could, they didn't want me to contribute. Like, he wrestles with all of this. Whenever they were getting ready to call him to pastor, they asked E.B. Hill to come speak. 
And in the chapter title, What Can the Boy Tell Me? Charles recounts his installation service. Evie Hill said this, I want to preach tonight on the subject, what can that boy tell me? Because he's 17. Evie Hill says, that's a question I've been hearing around town from members of the Mount Sinai Missionary Baptist Church. What can that boy tell me when my marriage is in trouble? What can that boy tell me when I'm having trouble with my children? What can that boy tell me when I'm having trouble with my job? He's only 17. He hasn't experienced anything yet. What can that boy tell me? And then after moving through Scripture for about an hour, say, I don't go a whole hour between the intro, sometimes. Okay. But after moving through all that, here's what Evie Hill says. So what can that boy tell me? He can tell you whatever the Word of God tells him to tell you. That's why, honestly, I preach the way I do. We've got people in this room who have so much more life experience, so much more with jobs, so much more with children, so much more with despair and strife and toil and, and marriage, like all that ever before me. There's a reason I don't use anecdotes from life very much or tell jokes. Number one, I'm just not good at it. Like, I'm not a good joke teller. Like, my kids will be like, Dad, let's play a game called Try Not to Laugh. You tell us a joke and we're going to try not to laugh. I'm like, I can't do that. Like, I don't have those experiences. I don't have, but what I do have is an understanding of the Word. Like, that's what Paul tells you. is like, this is what you've been called to. So don't let your age be disqualified, he says. Instead, show them the example in these five things. In your speech, in your conduct, in your love, in your faith, in your purity. Do these things. Quit worrying about your age. Set the example. Show them that this is what a believer looks like at any age. So here you go. In our speech, why? Because whether you like it or not, our speech reveals more about us than we want it to. You listen to someone speak, you know their heart. Whether you like that or not, the way you and I speak reveals who we really are. It's out of the depths of our hearts that our words come. In our conduct, why? Because our life is a visible testimony of what we truly believe. The way you and I live and act, the outward expression that the world sees, that is a reflection of what we inwardly believe. It matters how we act. In our love, our concern should be for the well-being of others and not ourselves. And Paul says, show them that you don't love yourself, but that you love others deeply. In his faith model, Paul says, a genuine faith that totally trusts God's goodness. Show them what this looks like. And then in purity, publicly and, private, and privately, let there be no doubt of your purity in every way. That's what we are called to do. Forget the age and get to the character. And in verse 13, he says, Until I come, devote yourselves to these things. Read the Scriptures, to ex ex exhortation, to teaching. Like that word, devote, is honestly why we do a whole lot of what we do right here. Right? We're devoted to this. We're not just saying, hey, do this. We are deeply committed to these things. We read Scripture publicly. By the way, you see Jesus do that. He stands in the synagogue and he reads from Isaiah. Like it was a Jewish practice to read God's Word out loud. Exhortation is better understood preaching. And then teaching, in that context, that is passing on doctrine and theology. Think like women's, D groups, coffee with others, book studies. There's that idea of teaching. So, Timothy was to set the example. Forget the age. Set the example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. And as you are doing these things, do not neglect to read the Word publicly, to preach, and to teach. That was his ministry. It was his to do. No doubt it took great toil and strife upon him, especially as false teachers are in the church, and yet we are to persist on. Now when we do these things, we are participating in a historic practice that dates all the way back to the early church and aligns fully with Scripture. Justin the Martyr wrote, On the day called Sunday, like today, 
All who live in cities or in the country gathered in one place. And the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read. That would be scripture at that time. As long, get this, as long as time permits. That's how long they would meet. That's really fun for me. Okay, we'll keep going. Then when the reader had ceased, the president, which was the one presiding over the worship service, he verbally instructed and exhorted the imitation of these good things. What we're doing dates all the way back to the early church. Forget the building. What are we doing? And who are we? That, that's what this is all about. Okay, so in conclusion, the last four verses. I'm going to keep moving. I told you there's a whole lot here. I do pray that the Lord gives me the opportunity in my ministry in life to be able to come back to these verses again and again and again and to preach through them at a much slower pace. But He does say, do not neglect the gift that is that you have been given or do not neglect the gift you have. I'm saying application because these are really like we're going to tie it all into us as we're concluding. The gift that Timothy had was to lead the church and to preach and teach. That was, And that defined his leadership. He was to care for and nurture God's church in Ephesus. He cannot neglect that, nor believers can you. Whatever your ministry is, you don't get to neglect it. You can't. Like, I have been tempted to just go. It's been fun, Lord. Like, this would be freeing, right? And he's like, oh, no, no, that would be, like, not freeing to you at all. Like, you would lose the fulfillment. He's right. But you, you've got to hear this. You are hardwired and created in Christ Jesus for good works. Ephesians 2.10. Listen to it. For we are His workmanship. Love that. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's what Scripture says. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I love the New Living Translation. For we are God's masterpiece. He created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things He planned for us long ago. Do not neglect the ministry that you have. That's what I want to encourage you in that. You and I do not get to define our gifts. We either get to walk in them or we get to reject them is the, the most clear, blunt, pastoral truth. We either walk in them or we reject them. We don't get to define our gifts, nor do we get to neglect them. We continue on. Verse 15, he says, practice these things. What? Practice your gifts. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them. Not like dabble your toe, but like just jump full all into it so that all may see your progress. He has to practice his gifts. He's supposed to do them to what degree so that all may see his progress. Cross life, you are to practice your gifts. You are to immerse yourself in them. You're supposed to like cannonball full in, not knowing if the water's hot or cold, not knowing if anybody's going to come alongside you or not. We're just supposed to jump in. Isaiah's ministry, whenever he says, he sees the glory of the Lord and the train fills the room, and he says, here I am, send me. Read the rest of the verses, because God says the ministry that you're about to do is going to be to a people who will not listen. They will have dull ears and dull hearts. They will not respond. And yet Isaiah's like, here I am, send me. Because it's the proclamation, it's the doing of what we've been called to do that's most fulfilling. Everything else is in His hands. Like the full context of Isaiah saying, here I am, send me, is not going to be like the most pleasurable journey at all. They're not going to respond. He's going to do this, and nobody's going to change. Nobody's going to be sharpened by the Word. It gets weary. Like to do ministry is not about the results. It's about faithfulness to what He's called. And we have to do it out loud and where people can see. Why? Well, Ricky, that's not very humble. Right? I like to, don't want people to know. He says, do it so that all may see. Because Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before others. There's a reason. So that they may see your good works and give glory to God, your Father, who is in heaven. 
Your ministry and all that you do points to Jesus. Like That's why we do what we do. That's why we show up. It's about Jesus. Do you want Him to have resounding praise or not? Do your ministry. Practice your ministry. Immerse yourself in this. This is what we're called to do. Verse 16. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Timothy, you better watch yourself. You're in an elevated position. All eyes are on you. My family feels that pressure. Pastors' kids can speak to that. There's a lot of that weight that comes upon us, which is why we try to live in a way that honors Him. Not with pretense, but just this is who we are. We might as well confess it because you're going to see it anyway. You're going to leave there and be like, well, they don't even do family worship. Gosh, but he's a pastor. I'm going to take the argument out of your mouth for you. I'm a pastor. We stink at it. We're trying to figure it out. Do you have hints? Let me know. Okay. Persist in this. For by doing so, you will save both yourself and your, hear, your hearers. And then we're going to finish this all up, y'all. Paul's final words in this passage lay the weight and the encouragement upon Timothy's faithfulness and upon your faithfulness and my faithfulness. Like, it's all right there. If Timothy does all these things, it is not that Timothy will save himself, even though that's the language. It means he's going to prove that his faith is true. It's going to prove that there's a genuineness and an authenticity of his eternal faith while strengthening his faith here. In doing those things which we are called to do, there is a satisfaction and a joy that just makes sense. And our faith is strengthened in it. His faithfulness to these things will prove His salvation true. Your faithfulness to what you've been called to do and to fulfilling that and to walking in that will prove your salvation true. Christ will never leave nor forsake you, but you will have that satisfaction of, oh, like I can do this. And get this, those whom Timothy serves will either be strengthened and growing in their own salvation or they may truly be converted to Christianity. So Paul was reminding Timothy, your ministry isn't just about you. Other souls are on the line. Remain a faithful and good servant. Brothers and sisters across life, pastorally and as a brother, like walking alongside you, I want you to hear Paul's final words too. Other souls are on the line. In the church and out of the church. Other souls are on the line. Remain a faithful and good servant. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. That's what we've been called to. We have created such a convenient Christianity that does not really align with biblical teaching anymore. We just want to wrestle with that. And we're going to be imperfect. So, what if we failed in these things? Because I'm guilty. Confess that to Christ, repent, go and sin no more. When we find that we failed in whatever it is that we're called to do, we confess that it is a sin if we failed. We confess that to Christ. We repent and we go and sin no more. He is faithful and just to forgive you. You weren't saved because of your perfection, nor will you be perfect this side of heaven. I need you to hear that. But you were called to obedience. Our problem is not in our salvation. It's in our obedience. Two separate issues there. The danger is we often find ourselves in disobedience and we didn't even know we were there. We just wake up and we go, how did I get to this point? Repent. I'm sorry, confess, repent. Go and sin no more. And then this last one, just rest in His forgiveness. Like, you will beat yourself up so much more than Christ ever would. We are unmerciful to ourselves. We are ungracious to ourselves. His grace and His mercy are absolutely rich and He forgives to the uttermost. Okay, last thing. And what if 
as we're doing all this, you do realize that in hearing all of this, that you truly do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Then after the service, come find me, come talk to me, come find Andy, find a friend. But you just need to know that, that sometimes we sit in church for so long that we assume a Christianity that's actually not our own. Like it'd be like if I go stood in a garage for like hours every single week and then all of a sudden I'm like, you know what, I'm a car. I'm in the garage all the time. I'm not a car, right? But I'm in the garage all the time. That happens in our churches. And whenever we hear Scripture preached, there's something in us and we're like, I don't, I don't even know what that is. What does it take to be a Christian? It's very simple. Just believe. Like believe He's a Savior and that He died for your sins. And just come talk to us. No special prayer is going to save you. Like no special like going to do these things. It's You believe and it's true. Let me pray for you. And for me. For me. Lord, My faith fails. My obedience suddenly becomes disobedience. The toil and the strife get too heavy. Or I see what you've called us to do and, and then it's not conveniently fitting into my schedule or my time or my priorities. But Lord, the truth is that we will prioritize what we value the most. The question, Lord, is what do we value? Living for you? Living for your glory? or for our comfort and preferences. Lord, when my faith fails, I take great hope in this, that You will hold me fast. You're the God who clings to me whenever I can't cling to You. That when I'm weak, You're still the strong God who is holding me. You're the shepherd who never leaves my side. Though I wander next to a cliff, You lovingly are there redirecting me back away. And Lord, sometimes you're the shepherd who breaks my leg and puts me on your shoulders and says, I'm carrying you. Lord, I preach all of this today, you know, with my heart, fully open before you. Say, Lord, help me in this. And by your spirit, I know it will be true. Lord, we love you. Because you first loved us. Amen.